Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. My name is Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. So on the last episode, we had begun a discussion of a recent case John and I handled involving a couple of burned children at a church camp event down in Florida. And so we're going to continue that discussion here on this episode. You know, we had some stuff that I think from a legal issue, we were solid in terms of agency. Yeah. But we were still faced with a tough jury issue. And that is the reality is he wasn't an employee of the head church. Correct. He was not. And we had to admit that he's not an employee. And that's why I think all the notice stuff and the direct negligence claims were so important. Right. We made a submissible case legally on the agency issue, but I think the, all of the notice and what the head church knew and what they were aware of that, I think that helped us get over the hump with the jury issue of how the jury's going to respond to the agency. To yep. I agree. There was evidence very clearly that that top level of the church was aware of his dangerous performances involving fire, and they'd already performed the demonstration at 500 events or more involving that church in different parts of the country, posted videos of the demonstration that he'd done before on social media with links to the high council's website. So what we did is we took corporate rep depositions of the defendant, the head church, and Throughout all of these depositions, they're talking about, we didn't know anything about this. We don't know about this. We didn't condone this. We didn't approve this. And they have biannual meetings, And we right? found out that he had actually performed this many, many times at events where members of the board of the head church were present. Correct. But the best piece of evidence on this issue was one of the corporate reps, good guy, pretty honest witness. And so I had asked him, and this is a corporate rep of the defendant whose defense is, we didn't know anything about this. Yeah. And I asked him, did you ever do something similar? And he said, yes, I did. That he'd done it. And so not only that, but he had done it at the same camp a year or two earlier. And the pastor who did it in this case had done it at the big biannual meeting, which happened to be in Florida some number of years earlier, where like all of the top level of the church members were present. I think, wasn't there also something in the Constitution or the bylaws that said like all ministers are members yes. of yes. like the top yep. council of the church, right. which so we thought was, was good for you know, agency. The stuff, I mean, they had things in there about not just fees and membership dues, but tithing, the requirements of a portion of their income that need to be paid back. As they say, trace, follow the money. And we really never had any evidence that any of the money generated by the camp made its way back to the head church. I don't think we had any evidence no, of that. No, there was no evidence of that. That was another issue that we needed to deal with. It was a tough issue and for us. I mean, they did not know about the existence of the camp until after the incident. We also had evidence, I think it was, and maybe they did this calculatingly. I thought the jury was going to be unhappy about it. They took no disciplinary action against this pastor for his conduct at this camp. Well, had they done that, I think the agency issue would be pretty much done. But we did add evidence that they prohibited any kind of demonstration that utilizes fire from that point forward, which went directly to show it sounds like you have control over whether well, actually, this kind of thing you know, can happen. Actually, the way they did that was they said a strong recommendation <laughs> right. of what they called that. And then it was, have there been any more? I don't think so. Right. And then I think <laughs> when we took the pastor's trial depot, I flat out said, look, if they tell you to do something, you're going to do it, right? Yep. Yeah. And that's because you have to. Yep. That's pretty much was it. This case resolved the night before we were about to pick a jury. 
And so we're driving down, talking about John's voir dire, and then trying to make sure we have a good grasp on what we think their top defenses are. They obviously disagreed strongly with any agency claim and the direct negligence claims, and they fought hard that essentially this camp had nothing to do with them. Right. Right. They didn't put on the camp. They didn't even know about it until after this event. They didn't make any money from the camp. Yeah, and they that's all true. The camp. They had no involvement with the marketing, advertising, planning, operation, no money from it. They didn't know this pastor was going to be at the camp or what kind of lessons he would do. And their main defense was kind of overarching defense for all of their defenses was this was all due to this Pentecostal church's interpretation of scripture, leading it to be mostly organized as a bottom up organization with an indigenous church model, which means every local church elects its own pastor, board of directors, owns its own property, has its own constitution and bylaws, as long as they don't conflict with the constitution and bylaws of the top level. But, you know, the other thing, too, is every one of those positions at the local and the district level cannot be held by anyone who's not an ordained minister, and they only get ordained by the seal of approval of the head church. And I thought it was very clear, in some aspects, it's bottom up, in some aspects, it's top down. So it was mixed. And like you said, We're talking about right to control a minister, and with respect to who can be a minister, that wasn't bottom-up. It was ultimately the final authority of that. And what we heard throughout the case also was this has never happened before. We've never been held responsible for an ordained minister. They had orders getting cases thrown out. And so that was the thing. In all the years of our existence, this has never happened. This can't happen. It shouldn't happen. But, you know, our response was, we're just reading the law that's going to apply to this case. (laughs) And it was telling us something different. It was saying, no, the agency analysis is no different here than it would be, you know, if it were a truck driver or a bus driver. Another one of their defenses was, look, we have 38,000 ministers. The credentialing processes for ministers and churches alike relies primarily and heavily on recommendations from the district councils. Yeah, except they had an 84-page file on this Right, exactly. That's what so, really killed him for yeah, this particular right? it's like guy. We really don't pay attention. We don't get involved. It's a rubber stamp. And not only did they have an 84-page personnel file primarily yeah. involving disciplinary issues, but they were involved in directing the response to the issues. I anticipated at trial they were going to say he was not and has never been an employee of the high council, and he was and is employed by a specific individual church. I expected they were going to say that about 475 times. At one point, they'd asked us to go to mediation. And the problem with that was, you know, we still had this motion for summary judgment undecided and hanging over everybody's head. And I don't like going to a mediation. As you know, Tim, if we're not within a month of trial setting, I think it's a waste of time overwhelmingly to talk about mediation or settlement discussions, you don't get anybody's attention. So not only did we not have a trial setting. They had this legal issue. Right. There was this legal issue. And we knew even if we were successful with the trial court, it was going to be taken up on a writ. Correct. And so we went anyway to the mediation. And all they talked about was how they're going to win the motion for For the motion for for summary summary judgment. And I was going to get into kind of how the mediations and settlement negotiations ended up progressing. But that first mediation which was halfway through the case, really was not any step. I mean, we had large demands, I think, for each of the kids. And they basically said, we're going to win the motion for summary judgment. And the mediator said, this seems like a question of fact. I think it was a retired judge from (laughs) Florida. (laughs) And and he came in and had no hesitation telling everybody in the room, this is a question of fact. I think it's going to go to the jury. And I went, "Uh, okay, we'll take your word for that. I think everybody left. Yeah. So (laughs) it was not helpful at all. 
So let's talk a little bit about the issues that you were planning to address in voir dire and not all kind of the standard, you know, burden of proof. And sure. Caps no, and unique to, what was and, unique to this case? One of the big issues for me was religion. You know, not only were suing a church, church, evangelical right. church, I had never up to this point gone in a case and asked people what their religious beliefs were. But we had to. Yeah. And I was first, I thought, well, you don't want to do that. That's going to piss people off. And how do you do that without getting people pissed off? You know, but then as I thought more about it and I had talked to everybody I could about it and got people's opinions. And I know some very, very good lawyers who were all over this issue. I mean, I didn't get consensus really from everybody. You can't do it. Some people said, don't do it. Some people do. And then finally, what did it for me was I thought if I'm suing Acme Car Company, I got to know if somebody, you know, works for them or, I mean, it's, it was yeah. suing the church. So the first question I think you were going to ask, because people would be more understanding, I think, that you have to ask it, was to ask if anyone there or a close family member had a membership in this specific denomination. Right. We were going to identify the campgrounds. We weren't going to keep the fact from them that the church, well, there was a defendant in the case. Right. So what we I We were did, talking about their religious government right. document. And, right, their mean, bylaws. It had to come in. There's no way around it. So what I did was this. I was going to hit it head on and flat out ask them. And right at the beginning, I was going to say, who thinks this is none of my business? Okay. And get those hands up. I mean, it's one thing to say, we're suing this church. We're suing a religious organization. Anybody have any problems or feelings against that? But I thought crossing the line may be what religious denomination are you or is anybody Anybody Pentecostal or evangelical church members generally? Generally. That was the issue. But we had to find it out. And so I was going to get into that, ultimately did not need to get into it. We got the case resolved before we start picking the jury. And the way I was going to do it was going to say, look, just like everybody here is asking you if you know my clients, right? There's a reason we do that. Does anybody here know my clients? Does anybody here know the lawyers on each side? We also need to ask you about your relationship or your affiliation with the defendant in the case. And so that's the way we approached it. And then there was, you know, a little bit of offshoot of that to try to wrap it up. People who may not have wanted to answer that question directly, I think you were going to ask about beliefs in fate or that everything is God's will, which the defense well, counsel was good, trying to interject throughout depots yeah, every and once that, you know, in a while. That's a good one anyway. But I was going to approach it. This is a touchy subject. No question it's sensitive. I'm not trying to pry into anybody's religious beliefs or practice. And obviously, if anybody had any problem with that, we'd find out about that right away. Anybody is uncomfortable sharing that information, let us know. Fate, that was the other issue. Does anybody here believe or feel that everything that happens, good or bad, was fate or according to plan? Tell me more about that. I was going to ask, could your beliefs cause you some difficulty or hesitancy in judging the responsibility of the defendant in this case? I was planning on spending a bunch of time talking about suing a religious entity, religious beliefs, beliefs against lawsuits in general. And that one kind of float over into, does anybody have any religious or ethical values about bringing a lawsuit? Or judging others. Or judging others. A uh, problem with suing a religious organization. And that allowed me to generalize it a little more like we're not picking on a particular denomination. Right. It sounds kind of like it's an easy answer as I'm going through it right now. But it just wasn't. It wasn't for me. I thought, man, this it's is a scary thing to talk to sensi- people about. Yeah, it's a sensitive, sensitive area. But on the other hand, people know you're trying to identify me to get me off this jury. But on the other <laughs> hand, if they are a member of that church, we're suing their church. <laughs> right. right? So right. I thought we were approaching it as best we could, but we needed to handle it very, very sensitive. 
my gut tells me you're always better off confronting things head on as long as you do it the right way and you're respectful and tactful and sensitive about people's feelings and listen to them. Right. The other case-specific issue that I think we spent the most time talking about how to handle in voir dire and was a huge part of your outline was agency. Trying to get a commitment that people wouldn't decide it based on technical employment finding out if they're okay with the concept of agency and vicarious liability in general and getting as much as we could about exactly what that jury instruction was going to say in front of them. So, Tim, as you know, I get so much input in terms of how I'm going to structure my board dire from what we do with our focus groups. Yeah. And that's really the key. I mean, that's a starting point for me, not only in the case, but more specifically issues to address in board dire. I mean, it's almost like a roadmap. I mean, the focus groups that we do, especially online ones, because they're broader, we get more input from more people. The first one that we did here was online. I think we had almost 100% against the pastor saying what he did was nuts. Almost everybody said almost the pastor was but, negligent, right. but we were about 80% on winning the case, either then saying the pastor was an agent or that the church was yeah, directly So the results were very, very Which strong. Big, very big focus damages. Group. Big damages, very strong. But the issue really was certain people that didn't go our way in the focus group on the agency issue, they didn't really care what the law was. Employee, exactly. Employees, we we explained employee. the law said control or right to control. And they were like, look, if they're not their employee, they're not responsible for them. Yeah. People would give examples. Does he have of truck an employer? Drivers. Yes. Is it right. them? No. no. What are not you doing? Employee. <laughs> so it was the kind of thing where it was a, actually a jury nullification defense on behalf of the defendant in our case, because all they needed to do was just keep saying, he wasn't our employee and he wasn't our employee. What we were going to do at trial was first and foremost, starting in Bordier, we're not claiming employee. He's not an employee. He's not an employee. We agree. The judge, everybody agrees, not an employee. And so I was going to hit that head on first, explain an agent is somebody who acts for somebody else, okay, who's called a principal, whose actions are subject to the principal's right to control. And then explain, you know, under the law of agency, a principal. And I looked at the Florida law very carefully to see what I could and couldn't do. One of our co-counsels sent us a brief that had been done on it that somebody had done for their state association of trial attorneys. And it had every case that had talked about what yeah, it was so, in the you know, state. We were very careful about what we were going to ask to make sure it was permissible. We had a case for each of these areas or questions basically to tell them, look, under the law of agency, a principal can be responsible for the agent's conduct, even though the agent is not the employee. Anybody think that's not fair? Anybody have trouble following that? Anybody require employment? And just to really, really do a good job beating the heck out of that, to make sure that that issue is just, you know, the fire's out, there's nothing smoldering, it's just gone, it's done. Let me know who feels a little bit like that and tell me why. And if you and, can't right, get over that hump. You can't, right. Get them off. I'm not trying to argue with you or fight with you. I like telling jurors also way in the beginning in Vordire, you know, I get them to promise to tell the truth, tell me what's on your mind. And this only works if you're open and honest and forthcoming. But I also say, as everybody here promise, you'll give me what you believe your answer, even if you think it'll make me mad or unhappy or whatever. I say it at whatever. the start of my voir right. dire. In fact, if you think I'm not going to like it, that's yeah. the stuff I need to and know the most. So like the next step was a multi-step process on this employment issue. And one was explaining what agency in Florida looks like, explaining the legal concept to the panel and getting them to thumbs up, thumbs down to find out who has any kind of hesitancy at all with that as a general legal concept. And then once we were past that, my next step I thought was to flat out say, this pastor was not an employee of the defendant, was not. Does anybody have trouble finding 
this entity responsible for this person's conduct because of that, to narrow it. Or regardless, you don't care what the instructions say and then telling them what they say. And then you're arming everybody else in the jury room to kind of prevent anybody from saying, but he wasn't an employee. So my thought, my process for Vordire on this issue was generally talk about the legal analysis, you know, the legal concept, what the law requires and doesn't require, and then apply it to this case. We're not asking them to decide whether it was an agent or not, just whether the fact that he was not an employee would hinder your ability to analyze that. Fairly okay. weigh the evidence right. and apply the instructions mm-hmm. in the case. And then the other was to introduce the right to control, to really emphasize this right to control issue, that it doesn't need to be to control, but just the right to control. And there's another instruction that I think you put in there about furthering the defendant's interest even in part. Here's how I was going to approach it. If you're instructed that when a defendant corporation has a right to control its agent's conduct, it is responsible for that conduct. If they have the right to control their agent's conduct, they're responsible for that conduct. Would you have any reluctance? It's called vicarious liability. Everybody doesn't like that. Right. And so, again, tell me who thinks that's not fair. Who has a problem with that? And again, from handling cases in the past, I know that agency is a concept that some people don't agree with. I ask about that in med mal cases when it's the hospital and some people do not like vicarious liability. And you want to make sure that they're comfortable telling you that they don't agree with that. Yeah. And you're not going to try to talk them out of it. And I can see why you would feel that way. And I understand that. We were going to spend most of our time on agency in Vordire. That's what I had planned anyway. So let me mention a couple other things, too, that I thought were important in Vordire in the case. Number one, the amount of damages. I always touch on that every case. And what I like to do is not give a number. I go into it again by a multi-step process. You could go in and say, who here would never consider 10? But you could throw a number out and do yeah. it that way. That draws objections. You're allowed to do that, though. Yeah, but what I like doing is this. What I'll do is I'll go in as a cap. Go first, who thinks there should be a limit right. on cases? No matter what the evidence is, whether there should be a limit. And what happens every time I've approached it this way, somebody who has a problem with no limit will say, well, it depends on the amount. And I'll say, what do you mean? I'm not giving a million dollars. It's not even, (laughs) most of the time, the person that has a problem with no limits will propose a number that they want it to be very, very high. And it will be a whole lot higher than the number I was contemplating talking about with the panel. Yeah. And then I'll take that number. If they say, well, you know, $100 million, and my response will be, well, could you conceive of a set of circumstances where you'd consider $100 million? And Or regardless of what the evidence right, and, the law right. and the instructions in the court say, could you right. never consider it no matter what? Or if the law allowed it and the facts supported it, could you ever consider awarding $100 million? Right. And if they say no to that, I think you're in a lot stronger grounds when you say the facts supported it. And then the other big issue, too. And this was one that was worrying me almost as much as agency. I think maybe as much the sympathy factor. These children were horribly, horribly burned. The damages in this case were incredible. So I was really going to get some commitment. I wasn't going to just pass this by. Yeah. I was going to spend a lot of time on it. We aren't really... asking you to decide on sympathy. Promise you won't. Promise me you'll tell them the same thing, right? Yep. What I like to do with that is empathy versus sympathy. Sympathy's feeling sorry. Nobody's here asking you to feel sorry. Empathy is the ability to understand, feel, or relate to others. You can have empathy. In fact, you need it when you're figuring out what damages are in this case, but you can't base your verdict on sympathy. You can't find for us just because you feel sorry for my clients. And, you know, I like to get a commitment, literally a physical commitment, raise of hand, stand up. Do you promise you won't decide the case on sympathy? Sympathy is sort of like charity. When you give to charity, you don't give what somebody completely needs or wants. 
right? It's usually less than what their actual needs are, right? You give what you can or what you think you can give. I don't know if it's exactly the way I was going to phrase it, but I was going to compare sympathy to charity. And by giving with sympathy as your motivator, you're invariably going to give less than what they fully and fairly deserve for compensation. But what I like to do too, and I was going to do it in this case, was not just the commitment of raising hands, but I go a couple steps further. And I will say, Mr. Defense Counsel is going to stand up when I sit down and you're going to be asked the exact same question, different forms, different ways, try to be a little more persuasive. But do you promise me that your answer is going to be the same when you're asked that question by the defense counsel as what you just gave me today? You first get them to commit that they will follow the law on not using sympathy as a basis. And yet I've seen very good defense counsel get up and the first thing they do right after we're done with that is go, well, of course they wanted to do that, but come on, everybody. Like, yeah, let's, right. be no, let's be real. Like he's asking questions about if you have relationships with people like my client and the defendant, he's trying to identify jurors he don't think are fair. Yeah. Of course I have to ask questions if you're going to, and just eliminate it. You know what? It's, I think it's all up. the way you present it. If you're yeah. authentic, I have had many, many times somebody say, yeah, I feel sorry for your clients. I think it might come into my decision. I'm like, thank you very much for your honesty and boom off. Right. But it is something you need to address. It was a big issue in this case and it needs to be addressed in Vordire the sympathy factor, and also this concept of agency. How can you be responsible for something that you didn't know was going to happen? It's almost like fault. People associate a verdict with fault. What did they do wrong? And in agency, you're not really saying award damages. They're responsible for these damages because they because did it. somebody else did something wrong that they right. didn't know that they were doing it. Okay. Right. A lot of folks just from a fundamental level go, wait a minute, where are the people who put on the camp and did the fire demonstration? oh, they're in that empty chair over there. The right. That was another to issue, us. too, before we had gotten <laughs> yeah. involved in the case. That was the biggest issue because yeah. I think there was going to be, I think in Florida, you are allowed to cess fault to non-parties. Mm -hmm. And they were going to be saying, my goodness, where's the district? Where's the pastor? There's going to be lines for them on the verdict form. Yeah, and I guess our response to that, too, now that we bring that up is we had the same evidence of control and right to control of the head church over the district church. Yeah. We were going to argue, ask a specific, I think, interrogatory in the verdict form if they found agency, in which case, if they put fault on the pastor, then they're good for it. If they answered agency, then there's no reason to even put them on the verdict form. But the district, I think we had evidence to support yeah, it, yeah. but the district was a little bit trickier. I think they were going to be on the verdict form. The agency was an issue. The allocation of fault, settlement of non-parties, empty chair, those were also issues. Tim, what do you think the best two or three pieces of evidence we had in the case? I mean, I thought the best evidence we had in the case was the video of what the yeah, pastor I agree did. With you. I agree with you. And then I think the next best evidence in the case was his disciplinary file. I agree. Definitely the top two. We had the entire thing on a video. Everybody who did look at it were like, what the heck? What are we doing here? You know, this guy's at fault. He's negligent. And about halfway through the case, new defense counsel was brought in. And then again, a month before trial, new defense counsel was brought in. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but it happened before the pastor's final video depot was taken. We couldn't subpoena him to be at trial because he was out of state. And I want to talk about a couple of the things they did in that depot to try to address how bad the pastor looked in the video and what he did. And then also that disciplinary file about what he'd done before. Well, we have a lot more we want to discuss about this case, but I think that's a good breaking point. We'll come back and pick up next time on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Jury Is Out. My name is Tim Cronin. This is John Simon. See you next time. 
The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.